Welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator Today, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Roche. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Chef Educator Podcast. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. Today's episode is titled The Lecture. Now, before we start on today's topic, I want to give a little background information on the podcast for our new listeners. If you don't know, the Chef Educator Podcast was created to be a comprehensive resource for both new and seasoned culinary, baking and pastry, and hospitality teachers, instructors, and faculty at both secondary and post-secondary educational institutions. Our hope is to offer a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that we can all use in our classrooms and our labs. And if this is of interest, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Okay, with that said, let's jump right into today's topic, the lecture. The lecture has long been a topic of rich debate in the field of education, and questions about should we or shouldn't we lecture still persist today. And I'd like to argue that it's not quite so simple. I don't think we should look at the lecture debate as an either-or question, like either I lecture or I don't. Well, instead, I think we should look at it as one tool in our toolbox that is part of our tips, tools, and techniques that we can use in our classrooms. A strict lecture approach that does not consider integrating other pedagogical methods with it will generally lead to failure, especially if it is not customizable for the specific students in a specific class. I mean, when we stop and think about it, every pedagogical method or approach has its pros and cons. We need to recognize that there is no one way to lecture, and not all lectures need to look alike in form, function, or duration. This is why an integrated approach is ideal. By strategically balancing different teaching methods, such as interactive lecturing, we can draw on the pros and reduce the cons of each. Therefore, I believe we need to stop blaming the tool for user error and start approaching our use of pedagogical methods more deliberately in ways that first determine the desired outcome and then determine the best tool or tools to reach that outcome. Now, with that said, lectures can be highly efficient. They can help draw focus amongst complex ideas, and they're very helpful in laying out a knowledge foundation. But they can also be one-sided, passive, and in no way help skill development and actually the students doing the work. Therefore, to help determine the most ideal spaces and places within a class to utilize a lecture, think about the value it can add at any given time. Is the value in laying a knowledge foundation that students can then use to actively build skills and application? Is the value in synthesizing insights from an interactive discussion or group work? In deciding about the form and function of lecture in your class, think about the kinds of things you want students to do by the end of the course along that content-to-skill continuum. I mean, lectures are great for content coverage, but they lack if you're looking for skill development. For example, I can tell you in a vivid and illuminating lecture how to make homemade Italian sausage. 
But if my goal is for you to actually make Italian sausage, then the lecture as a teaching method is a pretty poor choice if it stands alone. But if I then add in some hands-on and some demos, then the lecture's pretty good. So in making the decision about when to lecture, what to lecture on, and how to lecture, I suggest you use the following six points as a helpful guide. If a lecturer is doing anything else, stop and reflect on whether it's really the best tool for the job. So lectures can or should, number one, provide an overview or the big picture, and they help connect the dots. Lectures can provide, number two, focus and emphasis on important points and ideas and issues. They can also, number three, clarify difficulties or complexities in the readings or from other course materials or other experiences. Number four, they can expose students to experts, you, who can then provide their unique perspectives and the latest answers to questions that can stimulate interest and allow the students to see how a practicing chef or baker or restaurateur approaches the material. So lectures allow that. Number five, they encourage structure by explicitly naming and telling the story of the narrative of the course of the subject. And number six, they provide depth and insight through examples not present in other course materials. So, you know, you have good stories, so tell them. Your stories alone could be a lecture. You know, if you can connect those stories back to the lecture topic objectives or even use those stories to help clarify. So, with those six things said, I believe the lecture can be a, an effective tool in the classroom. It allows an instructor to provide an overarching theme that organizes material into an illuminating and interesting way. However, the instructor must take care to shape the lecture for the specific audience of students who are going to be hearing it, and to encourage those students to take an active and immediate part in learning the material. It is essential to see lectures as a means of helping students learn to think about the key concepts of that particular subject rather than primarily as the means of transferring knowledge from you, the instructor, to the student. And when planning a lecture, we need to keep in mind that we have control, or at least influence, over these four elements of the classroom. And that's for better or worse. Number one, the verbal message. Because you know, whether you prepare typed lecture notes or you just you know, wing it and improvise in the classroom, the words you say are an integral part of your lecture. The second, visual message, because if we're going to use slides or other visual aids, they can either complement or confuse our verbal message, depending on how we design them. We also have influence or control over our physical presence. You know, while some instructors are naturally gifted public speakers, we can all be more aware of and leverage our physical presence in the, when we're doing our lecture to better communicate to our audience. And I'm going to talk more about that shortly. And the last one, we also have an influence or a control over what students think, do, and say. As Angelo and Cross say in their classic book, Classroom Assessment Techniques, teaching without learning is just talking. Therefore, we have to think about how can we help our students mentally grapple with the material during class? Keep in mind, we don't have to lecture the whole time. For example, maybe we could consider breaking it up and adding in some small group or whole class activities that could enhance our students' learning. 
So what I'd like to do now is break it down into three sections, the before, the during, and the after the lecture. And I want to talk about specific things that we can do in each of these sections or areas. Okay. So the first section is I call before the lecture. And that's where the preparation uh, comes in play, what we should be doing. This is where we plan the content. We all know that preparation is essential, that all teachers who are any good are well prepared for each class. So at this beginning phase, start by thinking about the type of students in the class and the goals for the course. And what are your goals for this current session? You know, what are the type of materials you're going to be presenting? What media you're going to be using, if any? And then once you think about that, you can begin structuring your lecture. The lecture should have, obviously, a clear beginning, middle, and end. And it should also have an overarching theme or an objective that fits the course as a whole. And it should, if possible, relate back to the previous lecture. And that would be a good starting planning point. So let's start with an introduction or an outline or an agenda of the lecture. Because you know, when you use these, they let the students know what it is we're going to be covering in the class or in that specific class and how the materials for the day connects to previous and maybe even future lesson uh, material and why it is worth their time, the students, to engage with and understand the content. And next would be the organization of our lecture. The suggestion is to try and organize your lecture like a good speech. As Barbara Gross Davis suggests, you should Prepare your lecture for the ear, not the eye. Therefore, use short, straightforward sentences and informal speech with a clear structure and kind of transitions along the way that mark the key points. Now, transitions, what are often called signposts, can help our students follow the sequence of our lectures. They're basic markers that clearly signal important points. Like you might say something like, well, if you only remember one thing of today's lecture, this should be it. Or pay attention now because this is tricky. These are like little signposts that help the student as we go through our lecture. They can also signal transitions from a subtopic to the next. For example, okay, we covered the basics. Now let's look at some specifics. These transitions can also let the student know that they're transitioning from general theory to maybe an example or from concrete observations to the abstractions or so on. And because students often need help navigating the content and these cues that we give them can help them organize the information in their brains. And be sure to include a variety of examples in your lectures. Examples or analogies make the material more understandable because they connect the content to ideas students already are familiar with, which helps activate their prior knowledge and create more robust knowledge representations in the students' minds. Given the diversity of students on many of our campuses, including international students, it's important that we use a variety of examples from you know, different perspectives and cultures so that our students are more likely to resonate with at least one example. And examples and analogies work best when they are fully fleshed out in advance. So I plan them out, I write them right into my you know, lecture notes. And try to incorporate visuals into your lectures. The human brain has independent processing streams for visual and verbal information. And research has shown that dual channel processing is better than single channel. 
In other words, learning can be improved when instruction includes both visual and verbal information. Therefore, incorporating visuals into your lectures can help your students learn. However, be sure to design your visuals carefully, making sure that each visual you choose to include has a clear purpose. I do this when I'm using my PowerPoints, being careful to limit the amount of information I include on each slide so that my lecture, rather than the PowerPoint itself, is the focus. And of course, seek out any training you need to master the use of the equipment and technology beforehand. And make sure you practice using these tools so that you can you know, integrate them smoothly into your lecture. And one of the biggest keys when planning out your lecture is to be sure to include opportunities for active learning. You know, given that some research suggests that students have an attention span of around 15 to 20 minutes, and that university classes like mine are scheduled for around one to two hours, we instructors must do something to control our students' attention. You know, to keep it on point. I recommend changing the activity by building a, what I call a change-up into the class to restart that attention clock. So every 15 to 20 minutes, I'm going to change something up. Because sustained attention varies widely. And the quality of attention depends on several factors, including the time of day. I know if I have my early classes, they do not work. Also depends on motivation and enjoyment and the emotion of the students. However, active learning activities may reset your students' attention clocks. So if you, you know, chunk up your lecture and add in these active learning, you know, little modules or little activities in there, that's going to help them get back on point and help the brain focus more. You know, so it has a dual benefit. It engages the students' attention during the segments when faculty use these methods and it refreshes their attention immediately afterwards. So by chunking it up, they can now stop, they can focus on something else, and then when they come back to the lecture, they're ready to you know, engage and, and focus and understand uh, better than they would before. One explanation for the lapses of students' attention is that the information transfer model of the traditional lecture does not match what current cognitive science tells us how humans learn. I mean, research tells us that the brain does not record information like a, you know, a, a video recorder. You know, instead, it handles the volume of information by reducing it into meaningful chunks that we call categories. Learning consists of fitting this reduced information into already existing categories, or sometimes, if they don't have a spot already, of forming new ones. So categorization determines how a concept is acquired, how it is retrieved from men memory, and how it is put to work in generating inferences. This is why providing examples is great, because examples are a primary way students can make connections between old knowledge and new knowledge. They help make abstract principles concrete enough so that the students can maybe find a connection between them and what they already know. So if your main mode of instruction is lecture, clearly the primary activity for most of your students is listening to one person talk, and that would be you. And even if you use like whole class discussions, only the student actually speaking at any given time is doing anything other than listening. So combining what we know about tension span and how the mind works, 
I suggest that lectures should be punctuated with periodic activities. And as we just learned, once a new concept has been introduced, students need an opportunity to practice thinking in terms of that concept. By planning when to insert in an activity, you can make sure that your students pay the most attention to the issues which are most important. So don't do activities for their own sake. They should be integrally related to giving students practice with the most important concept in that day's class. When you plan your class, you'll, you will want to decide how often to add a change up and what activity to use. I would use the 20 minute attention span as a rule of thumb to start. So that would be in a 50 minute class, use one change up in the middle. And maybe if you have a 75 minute class, use two change ups. You know, maybe at the third of the way through and then again at two thirds of the way through the class period. But again, don't follow this religiously. Anything that becomes predictable will lessen the impact of the changeup. So variety is a powerful force. So having a handful of activities that you can use comfortably will help the students, you know, keep them guessing, wondering what you will do next. So you don't have to do that exact time in your lecture and you don't have to do the exact same activity every time. And be sure to spend some of that activity time that you carved out for debriefing afterwards. You know, without a wrap-up, students see these activities as disconnected from the lecture. By putting in a debriefing helps the student to understand what was important and what was not, and why we had that activity and how it all relates. As novices, the new knowledge students are receiving in your lecture is a heavy load on their working memory. Therefore, I like to include periodic summaries, which help to ease the load and enable students to you know, chunk the information so that it is more easily processed. I recommend you plan to summarize and ask questions at several points throughout the lecture to help ensure that the students have grasped key concepts. Now, beyond the obvious ways of making students active, such as posing or taking questions, there are numerous activities that you know, productively break the flow of the lecture. And I'll be discussing these in more depth in a future podcast, but here are a few examples that can be used. You know, you can pause to pose a thought problem, which, you know, this gives students sufficient time to reflect and write a response, usually one to two minutes. You might call on students to discuss, you know, the answers uh, afterwards or collect these anonymous responses to get kind of an indication of the range of their levels of understanding. You could allow time for students to write a summary of the key points of a lecture. You know, these summaries can then be reviewed without grading to assess this student's knowledge. You can use them to, you know, see where the students are and maybe then respond to any of their misconceptions. You could assign short tasks to pairs or even trios. You know, students can work together. You could have them define a term or generate an example of a concept or, you know, maybe solve a problem or answer a why or how question. You know, you could build this right into, say, your PowerPoint. You put a question right up there and you take a, a two, five-minute break and have them work by themselves or with someone else, do a think-pair-share and discuss the question and feedback off of that and then, you know, go back into your lecture. So it's kind of like chunking it up, it's taking that pause to let them you know, kind of chew on the material a little bit, you know, digest it a little bit. You can even use technology such as classroom response systems or, you know, or review games such as Cahoots. You know, this technology displays students' answers on the screen to questions that you pose and allowing you to monitor students' understanding as a whole. 
students really seem to like this too. So, you know, giving them this break keeps them you know, on point and then you can go back to uh, the lecture. And it's very important to bring the lecture to a close. The conclusion enhances understanding by providing a you know, synthesis of the material as well as indicating that something worthwhile was accomplished during the class. Good closings can be summaries of the lecture, and this can be by you, the instructor, or even students can provide that summaries. It can be cliffhangers for the next lecture. It can be thought-provoking questions that arise naturally from what was just discussed and transpired during the lecture. Now, all of these points should be prepared as notes that will serve as your your, your roadmap rather than a script to be read verbatim. You know, notes that are too comprehensive will take your attention away from your students. Instead, I suggest you write down key concepts and examples and including any essential details such as, you know, maybe formulas or dates or other information. Now, some find it helpful to use colors or other cues to mark those points that are most important and to signal when you will use, you know, the whiteboard or other aids. Experiment. That's what I would do, you know, with different formats until you find one that works for you so that your roadmap works for your lecture. You know, and in there, include the moments when you plan to pause for questions or ask students to solve a problem or apply concepts that you just presented. So put those right into your lesson plan. You know, it's your lecture lesson plan. And lastly, as part of the planning process, try and find out all you can about the room in which you'll be presenting. You know, visit the room ahead of time. Familiarize yourself with its size and its layout. You know, does it have whiteboards in there? How many of them? Is there multimedia available? In addition, obtain any necessary training on the multimedia if you plan on using it. Remember, preparation is essential. All right, I want to take a quick pause here at this halfway point in the show to recognize our sponsor, the Colony Hotel, with locations in Kennebunkport, Maine, and Delray Beach, Florida. With their generous support, this podcast is able to be produced and shared with all of you. So please consider their gorgeous resort properties for your next vacation. To find out more information, check out their website at www.thecolonyhotel.com. That's all one word, the, T-H-E, colony, C-O-L-O-N-Y, hotel, H-O-T-E-L, thecolonyhotel.com. Okay, now we're going to go to the middle part, the, the lecture itself, during the lecture. So here's a quote from a chapter, uh, chapter titled Delivering a Lecture, which is in Barbara Gross Davis's classic text, Tools for Teaching. Um, this chapter is an excellent resource for learning how to lecture well. And if you haven't read her book, I definitely recommend it. Tools for Teaching, great information in there. But anyway, the quote is, lecturing is not simply a matter of standing in front of a class and reciting what you know. The classroom lecture is a special form of communication in which voice, gesture, movement, facial expression, and eye contact can either complement or detract from the content. No matter what your topic, your delivery and manner of speaking immeasurably influences your students' attentiveness and learning. And here's another one from uh, Makichi's book, Teaching Tips, another great book if you haven't read it. He says, effective lecturers combine the talents of scholar, writer, producer, comedian, showman, and teacher in ways that contribute to student learning. 
So as these quotes point out, an effective teacher is an excellent communicator and therefore thinks about improving his or her presentation skills. One of the most important aspects of communicating is shaping both content and style to fit your audience. So in the classroom, if you cannot communicate in a way that is both comprehensible and interesting to your students, their learning will be greatly reduced because they're probably not going to pay attention. Therefore, I suggest you review and practice the lecture before class begins. You know, practicing the lecture will help you identify points where you're going to want to slow the pace or maybe pause or offer a summary or a question and collect yourself and your thoughts before class. Some people find it helpful to relax before entering a lecture hall to perform. If this is an issue for you, avoid scheduling anything right before class if possible so you can get in the right mental state. You know, some people leave at least 30 minutes before your class to kind of organize your thoughts and gather any material you need. You know, it is in some way a performance, an educational performance. I also like to arrive to class early and and greet students who are already in the room. This helps create a friendly atmosphere and indicates to students that, you know, I'm approachable. Students will feel more comfortable asking me questions and maybe will feel more engaged in the topic of, of the course if they have an opportunity to interact with me in this way, especially informally before the class even starts. So try that if you don't already do it. Now, once the class starts, Introduce yourself and explain your interest in the topic on that first day. You know, try to create a comfortable, non-threatening environment. You know, the more an instructor interacts with the students before and during a lecture, the more active the learning will be. And if you use questions you know, strategically throughout a class session, you can move the lecture forward. You can use them to engage students, to increase the use of higher-order thinking processes and make the lecture more interesting. So you want to pepper those throughout and plan those questions in, the, in your plan. And provide students a clear sense of the day's topics and their you know, relation to the course as a whole. You know, write an outline on the board before class begins or put it up on the screen. This strategy will help students organize the material you are presenting. You know, an outline can help students when they are studying to identify ideas and connections that they did not grasp during the lecture itself. So you may want to post that on your learning platform. And take time at the beginning of class to connect the day's ideas, the concepts, or the problems to material that you presented in the previous class and to maybe the overarching theme of the course. You know, always relate it so it's not disjointed for them. And show passion for the subject. Tell students what you find fascinating about what you are teaching. You know, if you're teaching a course that you have taught many times, recall what is interesting about the subject to someone learning it for the first time so you can get that energy back. You know, find new applications and examples that will enable you to communicate why the topic should be studied and it should be understood. And show enthusiasm for the topic, not just the subject. You know, if you're excited about the material, it must be worth paying attention to. If you're not interested in the subject, you cannot expect your students to be interested either. Point out those fascinating aspects of, you know, what they are learning. Emphasize relevance, you know, you know, connect your material if you possible to current events or pop culture as this will really, you know, help the student motivation. And I suggest you develop a teaching persona if you don't already have one. You know, decide how you want to be perceived and what mannerisms you want to have. For example, do you want to be quiet? 
humorous, formal, or informal. Whatever persona is right for you, aim to convey confidence and ease. Move with certainty and assuredness. And be careful not to seem pompous or intimidating. You know, focus on communicating with your audience. Speak loudly and clearly. I like to speak slightly louder than I would in a normal conversation. Project your voice. Face your audience when, when you're speaking too. Speak with an animated tone more slowly than you would in an informal conversation. And ask students to tell you if they cannot hear you. Some may feel too intimidated to speak up unless you ask. So ask, can you hear me there in the back? And when lecturing in a large room, use a microphone. You know, the class may also include students with hearing problems. And a microphone could help ensure that students can hear you even when you turn to the board momentarily. You know, if you turn your back for a minute, the microphone will still be able to project what you're talking about. And as I already kind of mentioned, modulate your tone, your pitch, the speed of your speech. You know, definitely don't speak in a monotone. I like to vary the pitch and speed of my voice for emphasis and effect. And use appropriate pauses. And rather than using filler words such as uh, for example, just simply pause before moving on to the next idea or point. And pace your speech. And what else? Enunciate. I always try to enunciate, especially the key points. And I go over the key points at a slower pace than I would, you know, maybe going through an anecdote if I'm telling a story or giving an example. So modulate that pitch. And your movements are important as well. So monitor those. You know, be conscious of them. You know, don't be too static. You know, leave the lectern if you have one and close the space between you and the students if possible. But don't appear to be too frantic, you know, pacing back and forth in the front. That's bad too, you know, but move around. Use the classroom as a stage. Move around so that you can engage and interact with your audience. Do not stand in one spot the entire time. Move around and move with purpose. You know, don't walk, walk aimlessly. You know, have a, have a plan. And make eye contact with the students in all areas of the room, not just with the students who routinely answer your questions or those that appear engaged. Look at others. Look at them all. This will make your presentation more effective and will also give you a chance to monitor students' faces for indicators of understanding or confusion or boredom and so on. And especially if you're writing on the board, turn back to talk to the students. So one, they can hear you, but two, you want to see what they're doing. You know, and when you turn, make sure you turn all the way around so you're not neglecting one side of the room. You know, so turn around, look at all sides and see if there's any hands up, if there's any questions. Make sure you still have them all. You know, they're all still paying attention to you. And as mentioned earlier, use gestures and facial expressions. They can help you explain, emphasize, and communicate the material. You know, research actually shows that the best hand gestures are those that reinforce the point you are making. So maybe you could illustrate lines with your hands or show a chopping motion, you know, so get animated a little bit. However, careful, you don't want to develop distracting habits such as, you know, adjusting your glasses or playing with your hair or pacing, you know, those would be distracting. To find out if you are maybe unconsciously doing something or anything that may be distracting to the students, maybe have a colleague observe one of your classes or even videotape your class and then go back and look at it. You might find something you don't even realize you've been doing. And actively involve students in your lecture. If you create an expectation in class that students will you know, often be asked to participate, they will be more focused on the material because they're expecting you to maybe call on them. 
Moreover, active involvement will create stronger and more meaningful representation of the knowledge in the student's mind. So I would suggest that. And when you do ask questions, don't be afraid of silence. You know, allow for pauses and allow for wait time. You know, wait time is the, the pause after the instructor either asks a question or asks for questions. Students need time to think of a response to a question or to think of a question to ask. So do not be afraid of silence. Most instructors' research shows wait about one to three seconds for a response. However, if you increase that wait time to five to ten seconds, you're going to dramatically see increases in the number and quality of your, the responses that you're getting from your students. And if the 10 to 15 seconds pass without anyone volunteering an answer, or the students are giving you puzzled looks, just rephrase the question and ask it again. But do not give in to the temptation to answer your own questions. This will you know, condition the students to hesitate before answering to see if you will supply the answer. Right? They're going to catch on pretty quick. Like if we just wait them out or wait her out, she's going to tell us anyway. Patience is the key. Do not be afraid of silence. The longer you wait for students to respond, the more thoughtful and complex their responses are likely to be. Okay, to help you make those pauses, here's a little trick. Take a drink of water or a drink of coffee or whatever you happen to have. You know, ask the question and then go over and take a drink. And that'll give you time to stall and give the students time to you know, formulate their answer and respond. And make sure you demonstrate respect for and interest in all the students' ideas and their questions when they do ask. You know, make it clear that you're interested in what and how students are thinking about the material. Show that you value their questions and insights. Refer back to their responses later in the lecture or a subsequent day. Say, oh, remember yesterday or last class, Bobby, you asked that great question. I'd like to, you know, talk about that a little bit more today. You know, this strategy is especially important in a large group. You know, it's common for students to be very sensitive to an instructor's reaction. You know, so use that in a positive way to keep that, you know, that energy. Keep them uh, participating in, you know, the lesson, the learning, the education. And another obvious one is do not read your notes or read the slides. You know, doing so is just going to lower the energy level. It's going to lead your audience, the students, to feel less engaged. You know, it's just like if you're reading something. So you got to, you know, you have that that script there. You know, you have those notes there, but you don't necessarily follow it verbatim. And while you're lecturing, interact with and pay attention to the students, your audience. Make eye contact, as already mentioned, with the students. Build a rapport with the class. You know, make sure the class is with you. They're following and understanding what you were discussing. You know, if they appear to be lost, take additional time to explain points or to back up or to veer off course for a minute. Ask and ask questions and answer questions that they may have. And don't take yourself too seriously. You know, be able to laugh at yourself and, and your mistakes. You know, feel free to bring humor into the classroom. But, you know, direct it at yourself rather than at the students. You know, don't make fun of their questions or their ideas. You know, that's just going to turn them off. But, you know, at yourself, self-deprecating, sure. And lastly, when you're in the lecture, keep track of time. Do not start early. You know, the students will be still arriving. But also, don't end late. The students often do not recall or listen to information that you present after the class period is technically finished. You know, they're already packing up. They already saw the clock. They have to go to maybe another class. So they're not listening. 
So trying to cover too much information in class sessions helps no one. So that last 10 minutes, you know, maybe that's a good time to, you know, recap, that's to summarize, that's to talk about a future class because, you know, they're starting to disengage at that point. Okay, and the third section is after the lecture. You know, it's all done. This is a time to what I call rethink, retool, and revise. You know, each time you deliver a lecture, you learn something about how best to present the material. And while it's fresh in your mind, jot down those brief notes on how each lecture went and use this as the basis for improving your presentation skills the next time you do it. You know, it helps you rethink the material that you included. Maybe you want to change stuff out. Then you can rewrite the lecture or develop new ideas for future teaching and, and maybe even research projects, something you want to try, you know, scholarship of teaching and learning. Oh, here's a new technique that I want to try in this class and see if it works. And include these notes that you take with your lecture notes so that you're, they're readily accessible the next time you teach the course. You can look back and go, oh, that worked. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I wanted to change this up. Oh, I thought I might try this. Oh, here's a new movie I want to try or a video. And speak with your colleagues about their approaches and what's their ideas. And stay abreast of new scholarship on teaching and learning, you know, especially with technology. You know, you can go on and find out what, the, what you're using. Is there a better way to deliver stuff? Maybe arrange to have one of your classes observed or videotaped so that an observer can help you evaluate what went well and what you can do to maybe improve student learning the next time. Lecturing is a time-honored teaching technique that, for better or worse, is the major teaching method employed in most academic departments and schools. It is an efficient method to present large amounts of content in classes of any size, but, as we just talked about, may result in students who listen passively. Therefore, be sure to use techniques that allow all of the students to participate, which will promote student retention and learning of the material that you present during the lecture. In conclusion, lecturing is an important tool in an educator's toolbox, and great lecturing can be extremely effective. There is no single best way to facilitate learning, and lectures remain an effective way to deliver some types of information. I personally continue to lecture in my own courses. However, it is just one part of the course. There is no reason why instructors shouldn't feel empowered to experiment with multiple strategies in the classroom. Distributing the class period into segments of lecture and problem solving and small group discussions and so on. As with every other aspect of teaching, you should choose your instructional strategies purposefully with an eye to the method that seems most likely to produce the most evidence of student learning. Okay, to get more information on this topic, as well as many others, including charts, templates, and examples, be sure to check out the book titled Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, which is published by Kendall Hunt. My co-authors and I wrote this book as a comprehensive resource in an easy-to-understand style. The book is available in both electronic and hard copies and can be found on the Kendall Hunt website at kendallhunt.com. That's Kendall, K-E-N-D-A-L-L, Hunt, H-U-N-T, all one word, kendallhunt.com. I also have a link to it on my website at chefroach.com. You can find it under the book tab. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Chef Educator. Until we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.